Welcome, TTB community. I am Bob Demena, and here with me, as always, is the angular <laughs> Elliot Shibley. Is that is that like similar to chiseled? I, you can take it that way. Yeah, it says it says thin, especially referring to people. All right, angular. Yeah. I was. It's a compliment. Okay. Maybe, thank you. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. So when I typed in the synonym, it it well, you know, let's just leave it at that. Yes, it was a compliment. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> um, all right. What do you have for us? So, partnered with Minivan of Memories, Minivan of Memories. <laughs> Not bad. Yes. No. So, our website is updated. We have an entire page now devoted to Minivan of Memories and all our affiliates. You can check that out. It's got his blog. And if you want more information, you can go to his website directly. Um, so, with those affiliates is Little Passports, which is a subscription based service. And you can pretty much get awesome packages delivered to your doorstep monthly for your kids and their art projects, different things from different countries, and it helps your kid learn about the world and different cultures. And then we also have a free Audible trial that is 30 days, and you can pretty much get a free book, and that is yours even if you cancel your Audible trial and do not subscribe. So check all that out. It's all on our website. You did a really good job with the website. I'm looking at it now. Um, so yeah, good job. You're a good partner. Thank you. Oh, yeah, and it, speaking of the website, we finally, finally added an About Us page. So if you aren't familiar with who Bob or myself are, you can check us out. We actually have photos of ourselves and links to our personal Facebook accounts and Instagram accounts if you want to get to know us and maybe shoot us individually some messages because I know Bob's not the easiest to talk to and I'm a little bit easier and cooler. <laughs> that that all right. Um so <laughs> that's not true anyway. But so the affiliate and uh partners tab on our website. Um at the bottom you put it looks like Amazon links um are they things that I guess some of them are things we've talked about but I just want to throw this out there for those people listening. If you click any of those links and then shop for something on Amazon completely unrelated to whatever you clicked it on, we do get a little bit of extra change. So I'm not saying you have to do this or even that you want to do this, but if you wanted a very easy way to help us out financially without actually having to send us money, you could click that link and do your Amazon shopping that way. Um that we'd, is true. We'd very much appreciate it. So just keep that in mind for any time you're shopping on Amazon ever for the rest of your life. That's easy to remember. <laughs> All right. So today's episode. On today's episode, we had a really awesome guy on. Uh, we met him through Aldison from the Mini Event of Memories, our partner. He recently ended a 35-year corporate career and took a seven-week camper van journey across the Alps from France to Slovenia in participation of a downhill mountain biking event. In addition to that, he spent his life touring the planet for skydiving, skiing, and scuba diving, and he was just an all-around awesome guy to talk to. We had a really fun time talking to him. And, and he actually is living in Slovenia now. He, he is. moved from the UK and lives in an apartment just on the eastern side of the Alps. Yeah, and he, you know, one of the things he went to a town, we're going to talk about it in the podcast, but a town that I have been obsessed with for a very long time and I I'm going to end up butchering the name, but it's something like Lauterbrunnen. Um if you aren't familiar with this town, Google image search it and you will not be disappointed. It looks like something out of a fairy tale. 
anyway, without further introduction, please give it up for our next guest, Peter Hayes. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Peter, welcome to the show. We're very excited. Uh, Adelson actually recommended you to us from his minivan of memories travel blog. You have a pretty incredible resume as a traveler. Uh, you've skydived in places most people only dream of just visiting. So you've seen it from the air and the ground. You are an avid downhill mountain biker and overall a very experienced world traveler. So we're excited to discuss all of your remarkable activities, what you've done uh, jumping outdoors. So why don't we just dive right in? Pun intended. <laughs> yeah, well, well, first of all, you know, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I try to keep myself busy. Let's put it that way. Yeah, well, you, uh, you can definitely say that. Uh, you've been more than busy. So let's just start right into skydiving. Um, I mean, we're going to kind of break this down into your skydiving trips, your mountain biking trips, and your camper van trips. Uh, so when you first started skydiving, where was it and what prompted you to want to go and what was the experience like? It was a long, long time ago for starters. I was 18 years old and uh, I went to, to college and there was a small skydiving club and I thought, I'm going to have a go at that. And I was prompted to do it from a, a TV station or TV show that used to play regularly from the USA called, called Ripcord. I mean, people over there may well remember it. And um, it was about uh, three guys who used to go and rescue people. And when I was a, a child, eight, nine years old, I used to rush home from my primary school to get home in time to watch Ripcord on the television. And I was fascinated by this idea of falling out of an airplane and enjoying that freedom. So when I went to college and there was a skydiving club to join, it just seemed the obvious thing to do. So I signed up and went along and, and the rest is history, really. That's pretty awesome. So where are you originally from? Uh, I was born in the north of England, uh, in Leeds. So uh, I did all of my early skydiving in the north. Um, I moved to Cambridge 30 odd years ago with my work, uh, but I'm a northerner at heart. <laughs> oh, all right. And your skydiving took you all over the world. Have you hit every continent? Uh, not every continent, no. Um, and it was a while before I traveled to the far extremes. Uh, in, in 2003, I did jump in Australia. So mainly it's Europe, the USA, and Australia uh, are the, the places where I, I never went to South Africa or anywhere in Africa. I never did it in South America either. But the USA, Australia, and, and Europe. And I did notice in one of your emails you sent us that you actually went skydiving in Chambersburg. I did. Uh, uh, that was uh, way back in, in 1981 when I quit my job uh, with a friend of mine and we, we jumped on the very first Laker Airways uh, flights from uh, London to New York. Uh, for those that don't remember, Freddie Laker started this airline where you could just, a bit like buying a, a bus ticket and jump on a plane on a one-way or, or return. We got a one-way ticket flew into New York, and then spent several months 
crossing the USA from one end to the other, north to south, east to west, <laughs> basically visiting every skydiving center we could get to. One of them was Seamusburg. And um, we were there for, I don't know, a couple of weeks, uh, made very welcome by the locals. I even We even stayed in the chief instructor's house for a couple of weeks, which was just near Harpers yeah. Ferry. And uh, down in the bottom of his garden, there was a, uh, a pond and we, we'd go swimming in there. It was high summer. And you'd feel things on your feet in the mud on the bottom and you'd reach down and pick it up. And it would be some lead shot from the Civil War. And the little farm track that went down to the bottom of the hill, if you walk down there, there was all sorts of trinkets that you could still find from the battles that took place when they were, you know, the, the armory at Harpers Ferry changed hands between the Confederates and the Yankees so many times. And it was a real hotbed of conflict. And all around this house we stayed in were trinkets and reminiscences of the Civil War. It was really quite fascinating. Of course, back in 1980, it, it was only literally just over 100 years yeah. previous. That's so cool. I mean, I've actually, I've only been through Chambersburg once, but it's only 45 minutes from where I live. Uh, I'm from the Harrisburg yeah. area. Beautiful yeah. part of the world. Did you, did you by chance get to make it to Gettysburg? We didn't go to uh, the battle site at Gettysburg. We went to the other big one, which named... Um, not Antietam. Um, what's the other? There's another big battle site just near Gettysburg, which we did uh, go to. There's one in uh, northern or in Maryland, I think, and one in Virginia. But there's several around that area. I don't know yeah. it offhand. Yeah, I look. If I was going to live in the USA, uh, where you are is it would be very close to oh, the top of my wow. list. That's good to keep in mind. Outsider's yeah. perspective. <laughs> yeah, seriously. All right. Uh, I guess you don't have the same opinion on New Jersey, huh? New Jersey. That's 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 where I live. I live in New Jersey. All right. And, okay. Uh, yeah. I I I I went. I jumped at um, Burlington County Airpark, yeah. Trenton, mm -hmm. New Jersey. So I skydived there right. as well. It's really funny. Where was your favorite skydiving we, experience in the United States? God, there were so many to to pick a, a favorite. You know, we we went to so and we it wasn't it was the impromptu stuff that really stands out as being memorable you know for example the first time i ever saw the golden gate bridge was from a skydiving plane and we we'd arrived at uh, a skydiving center called antioch which is just inland from san francisco and there was me and my friend ray and when they realized it was our first time and we'd never actually been to san francisco at that point instead of just taking off over the airfield and just circling up to altitude they did a little excursion for us and they gave us a gave us a guided aerial tour over the bay area so that was my first view of the golden gate bridge was from about four thousand feet from a skydiving plane so that was that is really special. Special. that's good to keep in uh, mind if you're visiting <laughs> an area and you're you want to get an aerial tour but don't want to do it as a separate trip, just skydive. Well, anybody can do it now because you just sign up to yeah. do a tandem jump. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about the specifics. So when you started skydiving, all of it was tandem. Um, do you do solo dives or have you done solo dives since you've gotten enough experience? Yeah, when when I started skydiving, there, there was no such thing as, oh. as tandems. They, they, didn't, they didn't exist. So, you know, I signed up and did a course to do my first jump on a, a static line. And, uh, and then you go through a series of, of static line jumps where you do some 
exercises to show to the instructors that you're capable of looking after yourself in, in free fall, basically. And then you get cleared to do your first free fall. And then you progress through a, a system of categories until you get signed off as a, an experienced what? skydiver. So tell what is it a exist. static line? A standing line is where you on your very first jump, and it applies for about your first six jumps if you do everything correctly, is where you, when you leave the aircraft, the parachute is opened automatically by a line that's attached to the plane. Oh, okay. Do they that's use that? Interesting. Do you, they use that for training today? Yeah, they still okay. do the same thing now. Yeah, there's different ways of doing it now, but that's still available and still a popular training course that people can do if they okay. want to do it. And that is way. the thought that if someone um, were to jump from a plane and not, you know, maybe be too overwhelmed with actually falling to pull their own chute, that this line would then just yank it for them? Initially, that's okay. that's the idea. Yeah, it, it opens it for you, and then uh, once you've done a few, you can then progress to going without the line opening it for you, but you have to demonstrate to your instructors that you're mentally aware and you're capable. There's a few, without going into the detail, there's a few exercises that you do to show to an instructor that when you leave that aircraft, you can pull yeah. the parachute. And when the instructor is happy with that, they let you go without okay. the static line. Are there a lot of instances where someone is unable to pull their own chute? Not really, no. I mean, it, 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 the learning curve is very steep. You learn very fast. And uh, the instruction in both the USA and the UK is very strict that they don't allow people to go unless they're 100% confident that they're going to deal with what they need to deal with. And that includes if they have a malfunction or something doesn't work quite right with the parachute. But of course, nowadays, well, something else I didn't have in my day, but nowadays, the emergency parachutes also have an automatic opening device on. So that if you do absolutely nothing, when you get down to about a thousand feet above the ground, the emergency parachute would open automatically regardless. Oh, okay. I didn't even I, know about I appreciate that. You, I appreciate you using feet. How many, yes. <laughs> what, what, what uh, altitude do you typically jump from the plane? Once you get to a, uh, an experience level, you, you do your first one at just over 2,000 feet. Okay. But once you've, quali once you've qualified as an experienced skydiver, you just want to go as high as you possibly can. So the average is 12,000 feet, which gives you 60 seconds of free fall when you, before you open the parachute. And that is uh, plenty of time to basically play in the sky. <laughs> you might be on your own. You might be with a couple of other people joining up and linking hands. You might be going on a record attempt to build 60 people in, in a formation. There's all sorts of different things that you would want to do in that 60 That's seconds. That's so cool. What is, it what, looks, what is the highest it, altitude you've ever jumped from? For me, uh, I, I went um, to a, a festival in Belgium. Uh, and it was organized by the Belgian Air Force, and they were doing using it as a training exercise for their Air Force pilots. So it was out of a, a Lockheed Hercules, and uh, we exited at just under 20,000 wow. feet, which, which was amazing because it was fairly close to the coastline. So we could see right across the English Channel back to the UK. Um, we, the views were amazing. There's some fantastic stories from that trip. <laughs> Uh, in terms of when you exit at that altitude, you're not quite sure where you're going to land and, and you could land anywhere. So that sort of brings me to my next question. One, I, I, as best you can, can you just describe what it is actually like to jump out of a plane? Because I've only seen videos. I've never done it. It looks 
so freeing in like this this crazy way where you're just engulfed in nothingness you know it's really difficult to put into words really and and everybody has a different feeling um when you do it for the first time nowadays with the tandem jumps uh you know my two kids did lucy and tom bolted tandem jumps when they were first of all seven and eight years old uh, and then they did it again when they were 14 and, and 13. And to land and see the expression on their faces of joy and exhilaration is fantastic. And really, that's what I would say, what is it like? It, if you enjoy it, it's not for everybody. Nope, not everybody wants to do this yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> but if you want to do it and you enjoy it, I would say, what is it like? It's exhilaration. And it's an environment where you can play. Yeah. That's really cool. I've I've always wanted to skydive. I almost went skydiving in State College, which isn't too far away from Chambersburg, and there's some really gorgeous views of the Appalachian Mountains. Um, and backtracking a little bit to the whole standing line uh, jump, one of my friends went bungee jumping, and she blacked out almost immediately after jumping off the bridge. And I think in that situation, that's why you have to do it a few times because I think you obviously wouldn't be able to pull a parachute if you're blacked out. So that's where the standing line comes into that's play. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's very unusual for people to black <laughs> out. I mean, maybe, maybe she, I don't know, maybe she was, maybe she got some wine the night before. Yeah, I don't know. And so, and so you said earlier that you can land anywhere and that's something that I've always wondered about too. How do you actually pick where you land and how do you control the parachute as you're descending? Yeah, modern parachutes are incredibly maneuverable. Uh, they're, the, they're just like an aeroplane wing. So um, you pick your landing point and one of the biggest influences is where you get out of the aeroplane. So depending on the wind conditions, at the beginning of each day, they work out where the plane needs to be for the skydivers to land back at the target area. And they all get out in the same place, and then they will. The wind takes them back to the landing area, and then the final um, approach to the landing area, they can manoeuvre with the steering toggles, just left and right. With your, you know, you pull down on the right, you go right. You pull on the left, you go left. The parachutes have a forward speed of about fifteen to twenty miles an hour. Some of them are a lot faster now, so you can be very, very accurate. In fact, when they in parachuting competition. When they do the accuracy world championships, they measure the distance from the target on an electronic pad. And we, back in the 80s, I think it was, our British uh, world champion, a lady called Jackie Smith, had a score of zero after 10 jumps. She hit the electronic pad 10 times in a row with a score of zero. So what is the scoring? How does the, what are the scale? Well, zero is she's hit right in the middle of the center of it, and then it goes out up to 10 centimeters. If you, a score of 10 centimeters would be okay. a bad score. And then, it go, and then it goes beyond up to a maximum, I think, of five meters. Uh, and then you, you, you basically don't score if you're more than five meters. But she scored 0, 0.00 10 times in a row. Wow. In the World Championships. That's, I mean, from the very little knowledge i have of skydiving that seems unfathomable <laughs> yeah highly skillful so from right. this belgium jump when you were up at twenty thousand feet and given that you have another like eight thousand feet of free fall 
and maneuverability, how close were you to your landing site? <laughs> uh, not very on that particular one. Um, the, 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 the high, that particular one, which was my highest one, it was um, there were only three of us in the, uh, who were jumping as a group, but the plane had 120 skydivers on board. And myself and my two friends, we were the last to leave. Now, if you imagine a Lockheed Hercules flying at 120 mile an hour and you're waiting for 120 people to get out in front of you, by the time we actually got out, we were quite a long way down from the airfield, so much so that when we opened our parachutes, we looked for the airfield and we couldn't see it anywhere. And um, I thought, right, okay, we need to find somewhere to land here. And we were right over the top of quite a large forest and fortunately, in the middle of this forest, there was a tiny little clearing. Uh, and we all made the same decision, right? We need to go and land in this clearing. As we got close to it, we could see there was a little building and there was uh, a few cars parked and quite a crowd of people. And clearly something had been going on during the day, a bit of a barbecue or a bit of a party. And we came in. It was quite late in the day, about seven o'clock in the evening. The light was going and we landed in this clearing and packed up our parachutes and started walking to this corral pen. And this Belgian chap with a big bushy's moustache came walking towards us with, with bottles of, of <laughs> the Belgian beer to give to us. And uh, I don't know if it, whether this is politically correct or not, but he said, with a big smile on his face, the last time parachutists landed in these woods, it was the Bosch. <laughs> what is what is? For the, for, if you don't know what the the, the Bosch in in Belgian terms, it was, he was referring back to the Second World War, and it would have been the German wow. parachutists landing <laughs> when they invaded. <laughs> but it was so you got a nice little amusing. warm welcome with some Belgian beer. Yeah, we did. They looked after. Did you looked have after to well. call back, or how did you get a ride? They they his wife eventually got her jeep out, and we were twenty oh, miles wow. away from the airfield, and and she. She ran wow. us back. Now, have you had any more severe scares when when coming down? Not not scares in in, in terms of parachuting. I I, I was very lucky. Um, nothing that really frightened me as far as the parachuting was concerned. Um, but I did have a, a a lucky escape in in 1993, um, along with 19 other people when we had a double engine failure in the aircraft on takeoff and we had quite a severe plane crash which fortunately we all managed to walk away from but it was that was that was i would call was if you want to see a, a let's talk about a scare that was a scare for wow. me how did sure. you all manage to walk away from a plane crash how did we walk away the, the skill of the pilot um mainly uh, well completely the, the, the pilot had very little time to think about how to deal with this situation and um, and he did everything right. Uh, we still hit the ground at a tremendous speed, and the the aircraft completely disintegrated, apart from the fuselage which we were sat in. Um, but if it hadn't have been for the skill of the pilot, we I wouldn't wow. be sat here now. Where was this? It was in in the UK, a place called okay. Oxford, uh, near near Oxford in 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 just yeah. near London, not far from London. If you search, if you Google. Um, skydiving plane crash 1993 I think it comes up um, as a Antonov AN2 was the aircraft a Russian plane that's wow yeah you are very fortunate so as far as skydiving incidents go 
what tends to be the main issue? You know, when something does go wrong, is it human error? Is it wind conditions? What's the driving factor for when these accidents do occur? Well, first of all, it's a very safe sport. Things don't occur. Statistically, in terms of the number of people and the number of jumps that take place, um, it is a very, very safe risk managed i'm not saying i'm not going to say it's low risk but it's risk managed sport and every individual that participates in it provided they manage their own risk you know they can go for 40 years like i did and be perfectly safe um nowadays when things do go wrong it tends to be as a consequence of bad decision making on these extremely high performance parachutes that are available now um which sort of advanced after I actually stopped um, and the parachutes can reach speeds of 80, 90 miles an hour. And if you make a mistake on a parachute like that, you're going to hit the ground at 80 to 90 miles an hour. And that's, that's really the main cause of, of serious injuries nowadays when people misjudge the performance of those parachutes. Wow. I didn't realize they could go that yeah. fast. It's something that I think I'll eventually do. I'm a guy of of statistics and data and yeah i know it's i know it's low risk so one day i went to hawaii and i wanted to do it and never got around to it and i kind of regret that so if i have the opportunity to do it somewhere exotic like that again i probably would there's a sky there's a skydiving place um like 10 minutes away from me not even dude let's do it yeah we can yeah we should do it go do it we should do it here before we go and try to do it somewhere else. <laughs> we would get, I, th- I believe, beautiful views of Philadelphia, which would be pretty yeah. neat. I mean, yeah. Jersey's, I mean, yeah. all the the bad rap that Jersey gets, it's a beautiful state. Hmm. It's a garden state. It is the garden state. There's beautiful smokestacks and stuff. So, and dust. And- I bought my car in, when, when I did my trip around America, I, we, we arrived and on the plane flying in, we went, we got the, the newspaper for, New York area or whatever, and uh, we were going through cars for sale, and we saw this advert, and we went down to Trenton, New Jersey, where this family was selling a 1967 straight six Plymouth Duster, a Duster, six hundred dollars, wow. and we we bought that car, and that was our transport right the way across America. And wow. <laughs> I wish I still owned it. <laughs> what did you end up doing with it? Uh, when we left it, we we just traded it into a used car lot or something. When when we when we left, and I went, I should have brought it back to the UK. It would have been a cool car to have. There. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if there are many of those that exist anymore. No. Um, I know. Back in 2013, I was studying abroad in Germany, and I took a weekend trip to Salzburg, Austria, and there is this awesome skydiving place a few kilometers southeast of Salzburg and my buddy and I really wanted to skydive and like at the base of the Alps and like go see them but it was early April and the skydiving place didn't open up for another two or three weeks and Uh, we were so bummed it really is Uh, Salzburg is only two hours away from my place in Slovenia oh okay I didn't realize it was that close Uh, yeah it's it's not far at all and, uh, you know, the, the, the skydiving places all over Austria and also in Slovenia as well. So if you come back, but you mustn't, you should do it anyway. Don't wait to come back to Europe. Just go to Seamus. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bob, we definitely should make that a thing to do. I, That's easy. I want to go to Slovenia. Slovenia is on my list. Uh, I went to Croatia and some of the other countries in that area. Slovenia was originally part of our plan. 
but we ended up shifting gears and going down into like Montenegro. But Ljubljana, uh, I did some research on that city and it is fascinating. It's a beautiful city from what I could tell online uh, with like a nice castle overlooking the town. So Slovenia, I think, is a, is a country that not a lot of people put on their travel itineraries. Maybe that's maybe not a lot of Americans, but it's somewhere that I really want to go. Yeah, it's it's a little hidden jewel in Europe, to be honest, and uh, it's becoming more popular. I, I first went there in 2006, and you know I've been spending a lot of time there ever since. And I've seen the growth in in tourism over the last few years. Uh, it grew by 18 percent in 2018. The revenue in Slovenia just from tourism. Uh, it is a beautiful country, small country, but it's got everything that you could ever wish to find. You mentioned Ljubljana, which is a lovely city with right in the center and all the riverside walks and cafes and bars and castle, the castle, uh, very old traditional Gothic buildings, um, the dragons on the bridge, the, the main bridge in the middle of the city, which has these dragons on, which theoretically are, I think the legend goes that they were there from, uh, pagan times when if you cross the dragons, they would spit <laughs> on you or flare on you and burn you up. Um, and, and then once you get out of the city, uh, up into the Triglav National Park, um, the mountains are, they remind me very much of the Canadian Rockies. Okay. If you go up, up towards Lake Louise and Banff and all around there, first time I went to Slovenia, it sort of reminded me a little bit of, of that area. Um, and then in the summer, the lakes are warm, 26 degree water temperature. So you can have wonderful, lazy summer days by the wow, water. 26 degrees. That's I, for the American listeners, that's Celsius, which is what, like 70? 70 degree water yeah, temperature. That's, yeah. that's really yeah. nice. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the winter, those same lakes are six foot thick with ice. Wow. Um, and all the mountains surrounding the lakes are snow-capped with ski resorts and uh, hiking, walking, climbing, you name it, you, you can do it there. That's awesome, yeah. I think Sylvania is a highly underrated country. and Yeah, it's in a great – all the other countries are very popular to be visiting. And for those listening and maybe they're not quite sure where it is, it borders the eastern coast of Italy. Croatia is along its southern border. Austria to the north and then Hungary to the east. It's tucked away. And so I've been to Croatia and Hungary and I'll be going to Italy shortly. And so I think my wife and I have already discussed doing something where we would travel and see Ljubljana and sort of drive through Austria, go into Vienna, and then maybe end up in the Czech Republic to at Prague because uh-huh. that entire area is so beautiful. Yeah, there's so much to see in there. Yeah. It, it, it is, and um, you know you've you've hit the nail on the head there with with a nice route from Ljubljana. You would go up past Maribor, the, the, into Austria, past Graz, and onwards to Vienna. Uh, but if you are going to Slovenia, don't miss out the northeastern part near the Austrian and Italian borders. Uh, that is, in my view, that's the most spectacular, most beautiful part. Of the it's country. noted. Which is where where my place okay. is. We're my, my, we, we are two miles from the Italian border and about a mile from the Austrian border, right up in the northeastern corner. Okay, wow. The village of, village of Kranskogora. Something great about these countries—they're just—they're not too big, 
you know, and I'm speaking relative to the United States, they're not big at all. And you could, you could travel throughout them so easily. The border's easy to cross and you get these different cultures all in one trip. It's a really cool way to travel. And you're very fortunate being so close to all of these countries. That's something that I'm very jealous of with Europeans when it comes to travel and how much they can see in such a short distance. It's really neat. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that was one of the beautiful things about when I retired from my 35 years of you know, corporate working life and decided with the blessing of my dear wife, Sarah, who is great to let me go off and do these things, that I was going to disappear for two months in a camper van across the French Alps. And uh, what you just said there about the size of Europe, to be able to go across, you know, four countries in the space of a few weeks was, was fabulous. Yeah. Was why, don't we, why don't we dive into the camper van? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. So this, this ties into mountain biking, correct? Yeah, it... It, it, it is the mountain biking was was a big part of the camper van trip, but it was something just without. I wanted to do that trip anyway for a, a long time, and having finished work and not having the restriction of only having two weeks vacation, it would seem just a logical thing to be able to go and and do it. So as soon as I knew that I was going to retire from work, the first thing I did was keep my eyes open to buy a suitable camper van. Uh, which we did find. And so I got that and then spent a few weeks getting that all prepared. Uh, and then in at the end of June last year, um, I set off. Uh, for the first weekend, I had some friends with me. And then at the end of that very first weekend, they flew back to the UK. And for the next three weeks, I was basically a solo travel, traveler in my van. Um, and my itinerary was was based around mountain biking events. Uh, I started with my friends uh, in the village of Chateau uh, in an event called the Passports du Soleil, which is a big, I call it, uh, as far as mountain biking is concerned, it's like to mountain bikers what Woodstock would be to pop festival goers, uh, in as much as 7,000 bikers come from all over the world to ride their bikes in this immense terrain that covers um, five or six uh, alpine ski resorts. Uh, And every night there's parties and live bands and every day there's incredible riding, all assisted by the ski lifts. Uh, One of the things with me that is a very common theme with everything that I do is that gravity (laughs) does all the hard work. So... So I don't ride my, I don't, you know, I'm not really one that's a big, would be a big fan of mountain biking if I had to ride my mountain, to, my bike to the top of the mountain <laughs> first. But in France and all the ski resorts, it's fantastic because you just hang your bike on the back of the ski lift and it takes you to the top of the mountain. So then you can have all of this fantastic terrain to ride down. That downhill. is awesome. I didn't even know that was possible. Started really? in the USA. It's, it's well. In, in, it started uh, first. The first serious mountain biking, downhill mountain biking, started uh, in California on Mammoth Mountain, um, and and then up in Canada uh, at Whistler. Um, that was then a massive expansion in the early night, late eighties, early nineties. But the first sort of downhill mountain bike races were in California. 
That's cool. There's a video that was circulating online of this guy. He had a GoPro on his helmet, and I believe it was the Italian Dolomites. And he was on this path that might have been two feet wide. And, you know, it was cliff on one end and then just a sheer vertical drop on the other. And he is picking up significant speed, you know, jumping over these rocks. And at the bottom, you see this lake. And the path is just so narrow. The video is so great, you know, how clear it is with the GoPro and you have a good idea of what this guy's going through. It's nerve wracking. Oh, it's yeah. a really nerve wracking video. It's really good. I'll have to send it to you. I'm not sure if you've seen it yet. I think I may have seen right. that one or similar ones. And, the, you know, the, these videos on mountain biking that have had 10 million views on YouTube or what have you. The reason why they have 10 million views is because they make the, the stomach of the viewer actually twist inside. Yep. And, <laughs> and they make my stomach twist as well. You wouldn't get me doing it as extreme as that. I'd like to do it, but I like to do it in an area or a, an environment where I can minimize as much as possible. Yeah, so I want to be able to keep hurt. doing it. <laughs> right. Well, that's sort of where I am yeah. too. I like doing some, you know, adventurous things, but at the same time, I try to have a line where it doesn't get to the point where it's dangerous. You know, you can you can sort Risk of separate assessment. adventurous, yeah, from dangerous, and and make sure you're being responsible. But I think you're right. I mean, you know, I have to be realistic about it, and you know, I have to take my responsibilities being quite serious at the moment as a family person with you know teenage kids and a wife and a house to run and everything else. I always try, and in everything that I've ever done, I always try and keep to a level that I believe is well within my capability. Uh, and even then, things will still go wrong. And, uh, I, you know, I had some pretty big accidents last summer, uh, which taught me a bit of a lesson. Um, and you can never account for everything, but you can account for 99.9% of situations yeah. to keep yourself safe. Uh, when you're When you're mountain biking, do you have a few different bikes or do you typically stick with the same one um i've got a couple of bikes um they're um designed for slightly different things this one here you can see in the background is a an out and out competition downhill mountain bike for, uh, from santa cruz bicycles in in california um it's um exactly the same as the bike that aaron Gwynn okay. races in the world cup um and my other bike is a more like we call an enduro bike. So it, it it's a little bit better for riding on the okay. flat or riding uphill. Um, so, yeah, the, the design of bikes is advancing exponentially every year. The, the, the progression on uh, the components, the durability, the way they handle, uh, they're a bit like Formula One cars. So one of my coworkers is an avid mountain biker, and he's been doing it very long time and he actually started a mountain biking team in central pennsylvania for one of the local school districts and he's kind of like the head of now this division of i don't know if he's the head but he kind of started this division of mountain biking in central pa and he actually has a very kind of similar story to you in the sense that he has this camper van that he kind of fitted out of a mercedes sprinter class van and just like made a bed with bike storage. He's got solar panels. He's got uh, like a microwave, a little fridge. He's got a nice speaker system. And he just, he and his wife, but just go out to these 
mountain biking locations and he they just stay for days on end and just mountain bike all day and go back to the minivan have a few beers crank the music and and just camp out beat it yeah, I mean, my camper van is, sounds very similar. I've got solar panels on the roof, and so it, it means I can stop anywhere in, in like wild camping, and and the panels will power my fridge. They'll give me enough electricity for a couple of days, so I don't need to be hooked up to power. Um, so yeah, you, you you can have a great day out on the bike, and then get back to your van, crack open a few beers, rustle up some food on the cooker, and just sit and watch the sunset and wait for the next morning to go and do it all again. It's like ultimate freedom. What's not to like? Your camper van trip specifically, you went, you, you traveled through some of the most beautiful uh, places in the entire planet. You went through the French Alps and you ended up going into Switzerland too, correct? Yeah, yeah. I, I, one of the places that um, was on my bucket list and had been on my bucket list for a while was uh, the Valley of, of Lauterbrown and near the Interlark and Lake. Uh, and I'd seen pictures of it. It looked stunning. It wasn't really a, a mountain biking destination. You can ride there, but it, I looked at it as an opportunity to actually have three or four days off the bike and go and do different things. And one of the attractions to go there was um, on the valley sides there, the vertical cliffs that come immediately behind the side of the town. They go up about a 1,000 meters uh, it is the European capital of wingsuit flying ah. and base jumping, and it's the it's one of the few places in Europe where you can actually you know you can do it legally, um, where you can just go to the tourist office or and and buy a permit and go and base jump off the cliffs or wingsuit off the cliffs. Now I had <laughs> no intention of doing it, but I I knew that yeah no. Uh, if I was thirty years younger, it might well have been something that would have been you know, an attraction. But I knew that there would be loads in the bars, loads of like-minded people to meet up with and have a good time with. So that was, and I would just, I wanted to watch it. I wanted to see it. I'd never really seen any wingsuit flying. Uh, and I just wanted to sit on the ground and watch these guys flying off the cliffs and landing in the valley. And then hopefully meet up with a few of them for beers in the evening and what have you. Now, as it turned out, there weren't that many there when I, Actually, when I arrived, it was quite quiet and a little bit disappointing. I never actually got to see anybody jump off the cliffs, but, you know, it it didn't detract from going to Lauterbrown. And then instead, I went up the to the um, Jungfrau Jock, which is the highest railway in Europe. It's a, a railway that goes right from the Lauterbrown and Valley up through the ski resort of Wengen. Uh, and an hour and a half later, you go right through a tunnel that goes through the middle of the Mont, um, the Eiger, the Eiger mountain. It goes in one end of the Eiger and it comes out of the other end of the Eiger at 3,000 meters. There's a railway station wow. up there at 3,000 meters. And from there, um, you can you can either just stay in the center at the top there and plenty of tourists that go up will just look at the views and the glacier and even high summer, it was all white with snow. Um, but if you're a little bit more adventurous, you can then leave the train station and hike for about an hour and a half up to the Monchen Hut, which uh, is a track trail that goes across the glacier up about another six or 700 meters to the mountain hut that the 
alpine climbers use for their overnight stops before they do their summit attempts on the Monshan Mountain, which is very near to the Eiger. So I, d- I did that. I, I went hiking across the glacier for a couple of hours and, and ended up, it was hard work, but I did wow. manage to make it up to that the That is so incredible. Man, and for those of you listening, we're going to post pictures of, of Peter in this location, in Lauterbrunnen. It's something that you don't re- you don't forget. I've seen pictures of this place so many times, and every time I see one, I stop and I just have to admire this valley. It's it's the I don't know. I, it's hard to describe. It's hard to put it into words. There's something about it that's so attractive. It, it is breathtaking, and down in the town, you've got the waterfalls that cascade off the top of these cliffs that come crashing down right behind the sort of church square, um, and it is. It does take your breath away. Wherever you are, whether you're in the valley, whether you're on the train, or whether you're on the glacier at the top, wherever you look, you just have to stop and go, Yeah, Is wow. this real life? <laughs> and like, pinch yourself. Am I really here? Is this real life? It, it, it is one of the yeah, it's special so places tiny. on this planet. Like I'm looking at sure. it on Google Earth, and there's, I mean, it's not a huge city. It's not like Zurich. It's not like Bern. Um yeah, and it's just nestled oh, no, right it's a tiny in village. the middle of these mountains. You could, yeah, yeah, you can walk from one end of that's, the, to the so other. So that's sort of something that minutes, I had uh, that I was thinking. When you do visit, other than admiring the beauty, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot to do as far as activities. I guess unless you're a base jumper, you know, unless you're a wingsuit jumper. Um, <laughs> for someone just traveling through normally, would you recommend you know just a few days there? Yeah, two or three days. There's the beautiful walks up the valley, um, down on the, the lake itself. There's the boating activities in the summer. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's plenty to keep you occupied for a couple of days, at least, or two or three days. If you're really into alpine walking, you could stay there for two weeks. There's millions of yeah, hiking opportunities in, in every direction. I but that stayed would, that would in go for Zurich for a few else. days and I really wanted to go down to Interlaken and Interlaken is just a hub of activities for or for outdoor activities because especially in the winter there's like glacier hiking there's mountain biking they have uh like ropes courses they have base jumping they have uh bungee jumping and it's just a fairly young area for people just to go hang out and do fun stuff for a long time yeah, and and even it doesn't have to be for young people. You know, anybody can enjoy it. And I, I when I was at the top of the um, glacier at Jungfrau Jock, uh, when I left to do my descent back down to the train, there was uh, an American lady, funnily enough, who was on her own. And it was like three o'clock in the afternoon, and we were both leaving the mountain, the highest point, to, to hike back down. And the weather looked like it was just starting to turn. And we, we just, she just said to me as we were leaving at the same time, you know, maybe we should walk down this together just in case we get into a bit of trouble. And so we did. And I got talking to her and she said that she was over from Connecticut and she'd been touring around Europe on a train. She started off down in uh, Gibraltar and had worked her way all the way up uh, through Spain and France and eventually into Switzerland. And, and after Switzerland, she was heading on up to Holland and then into the UK and then back to the USA. So she was enjoying the Lauter Brown and Valley in exactly the same way that the base jumpers do as well. And uh, so, yeah, age is no barrier. You can do it whatever age you want. So I want to get a little bit more into back into the mountain biking. 
um, because you've been doing that and you you still do it. Uh, what is your favorite place to mountain bike and what's your favorite type of course? Downhill, any sort of area where I can get an uplift system that will give me nice trails going down. So the French Alps is fantastic for it. Where we have our place in Slovenia is good. Um, part of my trip last year was to go and do an event in the ski resort of Alp Dewey's called the Mega Avalanche, which um, I did manage to do. Uh, it is probably the most extreme downhill mountain biking race on the planet. So I <laughs> probably bit off a little bit more than I could chew if I'm totally honest with myself, but uh, I did manage to come out of it unscathed. Um, uh, but it's a 25-kilometer race from the top of the glacier all the way down to the village of Alimont. And uh, it, it, it it's not really for somebody of my age, if I'm completely honest, but uh, a few people <laughs> came up to me and said, good on you for trying at least. Um, but yeah, no, back to your question, really. I, I love the area of the Port de Soleil in, in France. Uh, you've got such variation of long uh, descending single track where you're basically in natural biking terrain. Uh, what were probably ancient footpaths that have just been now adopted by the, the mountain bikers, they tend to traverse around the sides of the, the mountains. Uh, and then drop down into the valleys. Uh, and you can cover some huge distances crisscrossing the French-Swiss border. Um, in addition to that, in all of the main villages in that area, whether it be Leger or Morzine or Châtel, there are now the purpose-built bike parks where there are man-made bike trails that come from the top of the mountain with the big bermed yeah. corners, like big banked bankings where you can, um, a bit a bit like the um, the city centre skate bar, skateboard parks, you know, where you can whiz round, but like that, but naturally down the side of a mountain. And, and wherever you go in that area, you will find fantastic riding. Um, and it's something that's really transformed all of the Alpine region commercially in the summer months, uh, if, you know, years ago, there'd be, you know, there'd still be people would go in the summer for walking and hiking, but their main um, livelihood came from the ski seasons in the winter. But now all of the results, uh, resorts have become year round resorts, mainly because of mountain biking. So the YouTube channel that you have, you had your main video, where was that taken? of your downhill mountain biking there's, there's a few uh, on, on my YouTube channel. Um, I did five episodes of my um, camper van trip. Uh, I called it the Alpine Challenge, episodes one, two, three, four, and five. Uh, so the first two of that were, one was, uh, the first one was in Châtel, which is the Port de Soleil. And the second episode was the uh, Mega Avalanche in Alpdouis. Um also, some older videos on there, uh, also from Châtel and some from Kranskogora in Slovenia. Um, so, yeah, they don't get many views, to be honest. My YouTube channel, in all honesty, I, you know, people yeah. view it great, but I put them up they're, there for myself really and for my family to enjoy. Uh, but <laughs> mainly it's me. My family get bored with me, you know, oh, dad, especially my, my teenage kids. In fact, my daughter is telling me, you ought to let me take over editing your videos because I would get you a <laughs> lot more funny. views if I did it. I'm probably a little bit old hat and old-fashioned in the way that I put my videos mountain together. Bike, you, are, mountain biking is actually something that I 
have thought about getting into as a hobby. I know that there's some, there's a few places that I can do it around here. Well, I guess they're sort of up in Pennsylvania. There's not much, New Jersey is very flat, but I do think it's a neat hobby to get into. What would you recommend for someone just starting out? You want to go somewhere where you can just enjoy the environment. Um, You don't want to be buying a cheap bike. Uh, you don't have to spend an app, you know, you don't have to spend ridiculous amounts of money, but you want a good quality bike, depending on what you're doing, whether you go for full suspension or whether you go for a hard, no suspension on the rear. Um, if you're just doing it, getting into it and you're in an area that isn't particularly mountainous, then you probably want a bike that doesn't have suspension on the back, what they call a hard tail, uh, which you can probably get you know, a good one, something like a giant um, Talon, something like that for around about, I'm guessing now prices over in the USA, but um, off eBay, you will pick up a, a good trail bike okay. for five to $600. Um, and, you know, just get out there and, and, you know, put the bike on the back of the car, drive to somewhere nice and, and just start riding. If you want to then start taking it a little bit more seriously in terms of technique, then I'm sure where where you go riding, there will be uh, biking centers where you can, you know, check yourself in for some instruction and, you know, uh, on technique courses, uh, just to get some additional skills for picking up the speed, maybe doing, you know, little jumps, uh, going down steeper descents, things like that. And when you say technique, because for some people that aren't familiar with mountain biking, a lot of it is... Uh navigating over obstacles like rocks like logs and the more technical courses aren't necessarily faster they're more that have more rocks and maybe you're going slower but you also have to kind of keep moving when you when you're mountain biking do you prefer are you a more technical rider or do you prefer like dirt and a little bit faster with hairpin turns bit of both really i mean you know my skill level Still now, I mean, I've been doing it for about 12 years. My, my skill level, I would still class myself as a low intermediate, you know, in terms of out-and-out ability. Um, I, I like to go what I would call for myself at a, a pace that would be fast. But my definition of fast uh, is some way <laughs> short of what a 20-year-old's definition of fast would be. <laughs> Uh, so I do like the technical uh, terrain as well, where you are um, descending at a, a lower speed, but you, the speed is is critical in mountain biking because on the, on the technical terrain, where you maybe have a rock garden or some obstacles to get over, if you go too slow, then you're more likely to come off. Uh, the bikes are designed now with their suspension travel and the way that they can soak up the obstacles in front of you, that you're safe, a little bit safer and a little bit more stable if you hit them at a higher speed and, and let the bike do the work. It's a little bit like skiing. Um, you know, If you allow the ski to do the hard work and you just balance on those skis and let, let the terrain take you down the mountain, then that's much more easier than trying to make yep. the ski yep. do something <laughs> it doesn't want to do, if you understand what I'm saying. And it's the same in mountain. It's the same in mountain biking. Mountain bikes want to flow. 
mountain bikes want to be, you know, they like to be let loose and to be free so that the components can do their job. And if you've got the, the um, confidence to do that without too much fear, then your learning curve will be better. You'll pick up the technique faster um, and that you will enjoy it more. It'll be less yes. frightening. <laughs> In the, along the way, you'll probably have a few crashes. So you, you don't you don't learn mountain biking. Any and do you way. just wear a helmet? Uh, Is you that will the only piece of safety equipment that you'd wear? Uh, a helmet obviously is essential. Uh, again, it depends on on if you're just doing um, some flat trail riding in a, a nice forest or what have you. You would just you know you just wear a helmet. But if you're getting into more um, extreme terrain, uh, downhill where you're picking up some speed, where there are obstacles and the ground is going to hurt, then you know you add your knee pads, you add your elbow pads. If necessary, cool. you wear you know, full body armor um, because it hurts when you. Uh, do you use come off. the clipless shoes? Uh, no, I, I I have flat pedals. With I I would I would okay. hate to be clipped into the pedals on a mountain bike. One of the things that I mean, some do some clip some clip in. The professionals tend to clip in, um, but um, if I'm going to come off that bike, I want to be separate from it. I don't want to be. Yes, a, so the same the bike. Oh, coworker that I worked with who's still mountain bikes, he has had a few really bad spills, and one of them kind of busted his knee up where his shoe kind of stayed clipped in, and he fell off the bike and pretty much just tore his knee apart. Mm. And I think he was still a good ways from getting back to the car. But I've I've mountain biked with yeah. him a few times, and he's fairly yeah. intense, and he's been doing it, like I said, a, a long time. But we tried, my wife and I both tried the clipless, and they are nicer because you get a little bit more power from them for the full pedal revolution. But I, when you're balancing mm. and you're falling all over the place, it's you got to remember to kick your heel out to get out of them and just catch yourself. But it's hard. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, you know, you, you want to be able to get your feet off the pedals yeah. quickly when you're mountain yeah. biking. Do you mountain bike on uh, snow at all? <laughs> um, I've tried it um, in Slovenia once, and uh, it was quite good fun. Uh, it was a big part of the Mega Avalanche race. And so, yeah, I rode it on in Outdoers on the um, – the, the snow fields where you know there'd been a lot of snow back end of the ski season so there were big parts of the mountain that were still covered in you know quite deep slushy but so many bikers had gone across it that it, it created big ruts so you tended to just have your wheels in the ruts and your feet either side sliding down the mountain to <laughs> get back onto normal terrain not oh. not the most enjoyable i have to say yeah on the snow i wouldn't imagine that'd be fun no. at least you have a nice padding for falls yeah, yeah it doesn't it's not as hard if you fall that's true but uh, you know you're more likely to fall you've traveled the entire world has your has the adventurous uh sports been the driving factor for you seeing the world not really i mean uh, you know i you say i've traveled the world i mean i i yeah i've been to quite a few places but there's you know huge parts of the world that I've never been to that I would like to go to. I mean, I would like to go and see South America and uh, down into Chile and all around there. Um, and I suppose to answer the question, yeah, my trip around America was all centered around going to as many skydiving centers as I could. 
my trip last year into Europe with the camper van was centered around wanting to do a lot of mountain biking. Uh, but when I went to Australia, it was nothing to do with adventurous sports. I went there for my sister-in-law's wedding. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, the reason I ask is everybody seems to have their own motivation to see the world. And I yeah, was just curious to hear yours. Some people want to you know, eat food from different countries. Some people just want to explore cities. And you seem to have a pretty unique you know, travel uh, interest. Yeah, I mean, you know, I loved Australia. Um, we were there, I've been a couple of times now because my sister-in-law, um, she, her and her husband, they lived there for 12 years. So they got married in, in 2003. They're both from the UK. Um, so that took my wife and my two kids over there for, for their wedding. My, my two children were, how old were they? One was 18 months and one was three at the time. Um, and then we went back to see them again in, in 2009, I think it was. Um, and I did manage to do a skydive when I was in Australia. I couldn't go there and <laughs> not do one. Oh, yeah. But uh, uh, that was the only uh, – I also did, you know, one of my other things which I've done and, and uh, have a license for is scuba diving. So to go scuba diving on the Barrier Reef was, was quite special as well. That's awesome. Oh, um, so, but you know, I suppose, yeah, I, wherever I go, if I can find something to do of an adventurous nature, then I'm quite likely to have a go. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. So what are your plans moving forward now? Just more of the same really now, you know, I'm, I'm not pressured by having to go back to work tomorrow. So, uh, <laughs> um, I am repeating my trip in the van this coming summer uh, i'm going to do a different route but i'm going to go from france to slovenia again in the camper van um i'm not doing the mega avalanche race because my <laughs> wife has banned me from going back there um but now i'm going to the uh the festival in chatel with in fact this year is going to be pretty special because i'm doing it with my 18 year old son he's coming with me for the first time and we're going to mountain bike in chatel for four days together um, and he's doing it as part of a, a project for his schoolwork, which is pretty cool. That is awesome. Um, and, uh, and, and he and I are in, not next weekend, in two weeks' time, we're doing the first downhill, competitive downhill race of the year uh, over here in the UK, and where my son Tom will be doing his very first ever downhill mountain bike race against the clock in the in the youth category oh wow so he's he's excited about that i he's in the youth category i'm in the grand veterans category <laughs> um next weekend we go to slovenia um we fly to slovenia on friday just for three days and we're going out to enjoy the world ski flying championships which is which takes place in our the village in where we have our place in slovenia uh, place uh, called Planitza, um, and it's the biggest ski flying hill in the world. Um, and there will be something like 200,000 spectators flock in from all over Europe. Oh and it's a word. huge party atmosphere. Um, and it will be on the telly. I'm sure if you try and find it on the television where you are, um, you will you will find ski jumping from Planitza on the television next weekend. Oh, uh, yeah. Well so we're going, over, we're going over for that, for the party. Well, we plan on tuning in and looking for you in the crowd. <laughs> yeah, you'll be lucky to see yeah. us. Uh, we will be waving a Slovenian flag, though. We're very loyal to Slovenia. 
Um, so yeah, so that's next weekend. Uh, as I say, the summer on the mountain bike uh, across France again with the camper van. Um, I be, I'm doing my, I, I also race go-karts as well. So I'm doing my championship karting season, uh, which kicked off last month. I didn't do very well, unfortunately, but uh, um, that's a, a seven round racing championship, which um, keeps me out of mischief when I'm home in the <laughs> It's UK. very inspirational, yeah. all of these things that you have going on. I mean, skydiving, mountain biking, skiing, go-kart racing. It's, it, it's oh, and scuba diving. Yeah. You know, I, I just need to start one of those things. Yeah, yeah, it's really. a very impressive. <laughs> it, just if it's no matter if it's there, anybody should try it. There's there's no limitations on this planet that can stop anybody from doing anything. Really, yeah. I mean, if I can do it, anybody can do it. And all of the things that I do are not that you know. I'm not exceptional or anything like that. I mean, any ord- any person, let's say any ordinary person, any person can do any mm-hmm. of them. It's, but you've got to want to do it. Yeah. You know, it's not for, you know, you might want to do one of them or two of them or three of them or none of them. Yep. You just got to want to do, if you want to do something, then you just go and do it. I mean, that's always been my philosophy. Yeah. Take the initiative. Right. Absolutely. So just to wrap things up, you said in your email that you had your quote unquote last skydiving uh, event or activity in 2014 with your son and daughter. Uh, yeah. Do you, you said never say never. Do you have any skydiving trips planned? No. All right. <laughs> I keep looking at bits of par- you know, stuff that might be for sale. You say never, never say never. I, <laughs> you know, I made a decision in 2014 when I was 59 that I was going to call it a day <laughs> and retire from the sport before I was 60. And um, I thought, well, what better way to do it than to go up with my two kids? And for them to do tandem jumps and for me to come out of the aircraft with them and link up in free fall and uh, just have that really special moment to remember what was 41 years in the sport. Yeah. So, you know, if I, I did say at the time, the next time I will do it, I'll probably be 95 and I'll maybe my son or daughter will have taken the sport up and they can take me on a tandem jump or something. Yeah. But, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You can never say never. I, I think that you're going to have to beat this woman's record. So there was a 102-year-old Australian woman who holds the record for the oldest skydiver in the world. And yeah. so I think, you know, you're going to have to beat it. You're going to have to show The biggest up. challenge with that one will be getting to 102 years <laughs> old, I think. I, th- I think with your lifestyle, you're, you're well on that way. Well, we'll, we'll see. As we wrap up, uh, do you want to provide information for people to get in contact with you? Maybe your blog and your YouTube channel. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, 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 I do things like YouTube and Instagram for my own pleasure. But if people wanted to enjoy it, then that's fine by me. So my um, YouTube channel is you know, Hayes nineteen fifty five, the year I was born, and you know my name. And Instagram, it's the same. It's at Hayes1955. Um, so if people wanted to have a look at that, great. You know, please follow. Please subscribe, as they say. Um, you know, I'll be putting more videos up as, as time goes on across the summer um, on different things that we get up to. Um, so please, yeah, by all means, have a look. Yeah, we're really looking forward to following along. So I, I'm excited to see what you're up to. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on our show today. Well, it's been a pleasure, guys. I've really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, 
I'm sat in my little conservatory at the back of the house here, a glass roof. There's a, a, a moon right up there above us. Uh, and obviously it's still daylight where you guys are. So uh, no, it's been a, it's been a great pleasure. And uh, thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. That is our show for today. I can only hope to be as active and interesting as Peter is, as he is now. He's what? He's only, he's 65? Is that what he said? Uh, was it 65 or 64? Yeah. But either way, he has – he's done so much. and But not only so much in – I don't know how to – like just in one realm. He's kind of somehow incorporated multiple travel realms, I mean, and multiple activities in throughout the world. He's done scuba diving and mountain biking um skydove across the country and the world the united states that was awesome that he's been to chambersburg yeah that was so crazy yeah Yeah. so i mean anytime you get to talk to somebody with that that type of knowledge and that information and that experience um is always it's it's always a big deal and that's sort of why we do this isn't it it is definitely is and a quick update so shortly after we recorded our episode with peter maybe a week later he emailed us and sent us a message on instagram and sent us pictures of a biking accident, downhill mountain biking accident that he had and broke his clavicle. But it seems like he is doing well in recovery and he does not, he is not going to let it ruin his summer plans. No. Yeah. So Peter, thank you. And uh, to everyone listening, we hope you enjoyed the show. Again, um, I know this probably gets old, but two seconds of your day, rate us on iTunes. You really have no idea how far that goes. It helps us significantly. Every, every review matters. So thank you and uh, tune in next week.